Hello and welcome to People Places Power with me, Nick Cull. And me, Simon Anhold. In this podcast, we think about international reputation, foreign policy, and a few other issues along the way. And today, we're going to talk about the international reputation of France. And Simon, for people like you and I who grew up in the UK, the image of France has always loomed pretty large. Almost it was the prime country we compared ourselves to uh, in, in many ways. But it, it seems that it's an important image to many people around the world. And yet, unusually for an image, there has been some movement in the image of France. Could you talk us through what, what you see when you look at France these days or what shows up in the indices? Yeah, well, let's not get too excited because movement in the Nation Brands Index is always a relative term, unless we're talking about America, which is rather volatile. We're not talking about statistically significant differences from one year to the to the next. But then let's let's dive in and see and see what the data tells us. First thing to say is that France is a is a big hitter. It's a superstar player in the national image stakes. It's a massively uh, admired country almost everywhere on earth. It's never ranked lower than fifth overall since the current version of the Nation Brands Index was fielded in 2008. The data before 2008 is hard to compare because the questionnaire was a bit different and we used a slightly different methodology. But ever since I teamed up with GFK Roper in 2008, the thing has been absolutely stable in terms of its questionnaire and its methodology. And as I say, uh, France has never dipped below fifth. It's actually been second the mm-hmm. second most admired country on the planet on four occasions uh, since 2008. So we're clearly talking about a soft power superpower. Here. Mm-hmm. It's always in that top cluster along with the, the other fixtures in that top cluster are Germany, the UK and Canada. And the US and Japan move in and out of the top cluster depending on what's what's going on. Japan because it's borderline and the US because, as we said, it is somewhat more volatile. As I say, it's the only foreign country that most people ever think about, and that's why its image is subject to to a bit of vacillation. So just to to dive in a little more deeply and start to characterise that relation, that that, uh, reputation, of course, it's one thing to say that a country has a a powerful reputation, but quite another to characterise it and say, well, in what way is it strong? Is it strong because people fear it? Is Mm -hmm. it strong because they adore it? I suppose France is what 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 I would call a classic soft brand in the sense mm-hmm. that it's the aspects like tourism and culture, the soft factors, where it scores highest. And you and I have, um, in previous uh, editions of this podcast, talked about this concept of decorative versus useful. Mm-hmm. It seems that people really conceive of countries in, in two categories. They're either useful countries, they're good at making stuff, they're good at money, they're good at progress, they're good at technology, they're good at war or whatever, or else they're decorative, which means they're good at culture, they're good at landscape, they're good at fashion, they're good at uh, people and so forth. So France, classic soft country in the sense that, for example, it it ranks number two in tourism, which is the classic soft dimension, Mm -hmm. second most admired tourism uh, country on earth. Uh, But when it comes to, for example, investment and immigration, which is a cluster of questions relating to perceptions of the power of its economy, it goes down to six. And that's a really interesting set of figures because it's precisely the opposite of Germany. Germany Mm. is the classic 
hard image, useful rather than decorative, and so where France ranks second in tourism, Germany ranks sixth, and where France ranks sixth in, tour in investment in immigration, Germany ranks second. So they are almost mirror images of each other, one soft, one hard. It has to be said, of course, the obvious point, that all this is just crap, <laughs> because mm -hmm. it's not true. But that is what people believe. And because they have this very simplified idea in their head, which is partly why we tend to use the word brand, it's a simplification, a childish mm -hmm. simplification of the complexity of countries. When they think of France, they think of decorative, and so they just kind of overlook the fact that uh, France has uh, extraordinary achievements in technology and industry and finance, and they kind of overlook the fact that Germany is one of the world's big hitters when it comes to uh, culture and the arts and tourism and so forth. But those are the perceptions, and that's, and that's what we end up with. Uh, it's a problem for, 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 for both countries. So loads more here, but I, I want to let you get a word in edgeways. Well, the first thing is that, I mean, as a historian, I think it's fascinating to see how France was perceived historically. And if we were mm. having this conversation 150 years ago, we would have thought of France as a very useful country and militarily assertive. It was, you know, identified with its with its military and its military technologies. Uh, there's a little a little detail, you know, in Gilbert and Sullivan, the original version of the modern major general's song, he mm. sings about a cashpo rifle. Mm. And, almost, you know, just a few years later, they had to change that lyric to being uh, to sing about a Mauser rifle because Germany had replaced France as an mm. image of a mil of, of the military country, uh, probably because of the. Um, uh, War of 18, 1870. So, it, you know, I think France has had this kind of, it's been on a trajectory away from the useful towards the decorative for a long time. But that's what you'd expect, that countries would be, uh, it takes a long time for a reputation to change. You could argue that France had no choice because with the, with the loss of empire and the forward march of the Anglosphere, Yes, um, France wasn't. Uh, there, there was no hard power role available for it in the international. No, that's community. right. And and the terrible losses that France particularly suffered in the uh, in the in the First World War. You know, I think we're still living in in the wake of that. It's extraordinary to see how France has continued to invest in a global role. And mm. I'm always impressed by the organisation uh, Francophonie mm. and working to maintain the French language internationally. I think that that's that that's impressive, and it's interesting to see how countries that weren't historically part of the French Empire have been welcomed into the Francophonie as a as a sort of a way of participating in international discussion. Ar Armenia, for example, is part of the Francophonie now. Yes, and I wonder where you know do, do you think that. Uh, that side of things helps to sustain an image of France, or is it a, a symptom of a, an ongoing regard that countries still want to align themselves with France? I think the general tendency is for countries, particularly ex-colonies, to want to uh, unalign themselves from whoever was yes. there before, um, for quite understandable reasons. And so you find things moving in the opposite direction as well. You find, uh, for example, countries that were part of the of the French Empire wanting to join the Commonwealth, even though they were never part of the British Empire, uh, simply in order to uh, to cock and snook at the 
of their, of their um, ex-colonizers. Um, but that, that point about language leads nicely into the, to the next uh, point here that's in, in the data. What, what lets France down in image terms, the reason why it tends to be at the lower end of the top five rather than the upper end, the reason why it can't outperform, uh, for example, Canada, is, is because of its governance scores. Mm. Ah, that's interesting. It tends to rank on average about 12th on most of the, what we might call the good country indicators. So do you perceive this country's government as contributing to global challenges? Is it doing something about climate change? Is it doing something about migration? Is it doing something about health and welfare for humanity? And there France ranks rather low. The perception is that it's not a major contributor to the well-being of the international community. Now, that's a little unfair because if you look at the Good Country Index, which I'd remind our listeners actually measures the performance of countries rather than perceptions, France nearly always ranks in the top 10 overall mm. of I think country. it was number seven in the most recent iteration, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So France, uh, relative to the size of its economy, is actually a very significant contributor um, to international order and the, 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 the global commons. It has to be said that it, it underperforms on planet and climate. It only makes 19th um, in the most recent one. And science and technology is one of its less good rankings, 25th. Decent security way down in the hundreds, but that's very typical for Western European countries because they export so many weapons and they kill so many people in other countries. But it's, uh, I think culture is is its strongest good country indicator, isn't it? Um, it, it may well be. I'd need to double check that. It's certainly its uh, strongest nation brands index indicator, along with uh, yes, no, it's the same in it's the same in good country. It's seventh. Uh, seventh strongest culturally, though the French would be horrified by that. They would think that would be unacceptable as, as the home home uh, nation of UNESCO. You know, they would. Uh... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I'll tell you what, they'd be even more horrified by. And this sounds like a joke, but France's weakest indicator of all in terms of perception is people. And this is where uh, France's image is really rather uneven when it comes to people's perceptions of the French. There's an old joke in, in which has been around for probably centuries in the United Kingdom that France would be great if it wasn't for the French. <laughs> yes. And the French have got this reputation for being a little bit prickly, not necessarily being uh, welcoming uh, towards foreigners. The reality of the matter, I don't know. I mean, I know France reasonably well and I studied French at university and all the rest of it. And my observation has always been that the French are not, they're, they're not... Um, unfriendly to foreigners they're just highly discriminating they know what they want in their foreigners you basically have to be three things you have to be very well dressed or you have to have very good manners or you have to speak perfect french two out of three is okay but the majority of of visitors who go to france don't have any of those they're not well dressed they haven't got lovely manners and they don't speak french and that's why the french treat them like crap and frankly to the french (laughs) view they deserve it so the the this is kind of a joke but it's very measurable and it's really there. That's the stereotype and it's reflected in the Nation Brands Index. And if it's reflected in the Nation Brands Index, it means it has an impact on France's performance in all kinds of areas, including the strictly um, economic. However, if we look in more detail, we see that it's not everybody in the world who marks down French people. The Chinese, the Russians, the Mexicans, the Indians would have no idea what you were talking about. 
And if they heard us making these um, smiley jokes about how poorly regarded the French are, nobody really outside Europe and the Anglosphere would have any idea what we were talking about. They think the French. Well, that's very interesting that France has a good image in Mexico, uh, given that, you know, there was a, a French, oh, the French were imposing a monarch uh, uh, on Mexico, you know, uh, in the 19th century. And uh, that's, um, uh, it shows the forgiving nature of Mexico, rather. Or maybe when you've got the United States uh, right next door, you don't need to uh, uh, look across an ocean for, for archetypes of rudeness. The, yes, and and and. Latin America, as, as, as I always said, is separated from the rest of the world by a vast ocean. And truly, countries like France seem very, very far away for your average Mexican. As you say, there they tend to be focused on Mexico, Canada and Guatemala. On um, I, I saw a really interesting poll the other year asking people who they would want to be colonized by <laughs> if they had to be colonized. And like France was the clear winner. Yeah. And this seemed to me to be just extraordinary, given how horrible it was mm. uh, for, for many of the French colonies and terrible things that happened in Indochina mm. uh, under French rule, yes. for example. But, but, but this, I, this I find, memories of colonization operate in a very, very strange way. What seems to happen, not in every case, but in many, many cases, is that after a few generations, all a population, a colonized population, seems to remember is that they know this country and they don't quite remember how they met but they just know that they know them and there's a feeling of closeness. So if you look at, for example, uh, Indian perceptions of the United Kingdom, it's remarkable how warm and positive they are. And if you, uh, undeservedly so, of course, and if a large part, and if you delve into that and you ask questions, you really get this impression, oh yes, we know the Brits and therefore we trust them. So what seems to be the dying echo of colonization is actually rather the, the positive end of the associations in that case and in many other cases as well. But this this question of, of um, people liking or wanting to like the French is actually a very sad story because if the, one of the questions we ask in the Nation Brands Index is, would you like to have somebody from this country as a close friend? And France actually ranks sixth in the world for that. And that's very high indeed. Almost everybody would love to have a French friend. But when we ask the question, if you went to this country, would you expect a warm welcome? It's 17th. So basically what the world is saying to us is actually we really like the French, but we're afraid they don't like us. Ah, that's interesting. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I do. I, I, I think that assumptions about welcome are a really interesting yes, dynamic and fears that you won't be welcomed and uh, projection onto yeah. onto a feeling onto a person. Yeah, yeah. You know. But it's, it's, I suppose what this all points to, it all boils down to is this curious non-alignment of, of France with the various components of the international community. And I mean, you say that and you've said everything and you've said nothing because most countries have a unique relationship with the international community. But France, it's just, it's just worth mentioning. Being a large, wealthy, powerful, ex-major power in an international community that is almost entirely Anglophone at this point in history, the French, for very good and very understandable reasons, don't want to um, abandon or betray their own language and their own culture and their own history. And it always puts them slightly on, on the margins. It's always a sense of struggle. Are they part of the international community or aren't they? Every now and again, you get a you get a figure like Macron, who is an integrator and a collaborator and a multilateralist and a fan of the international system. 
And that reminds us that France is an important uh, player in world affairs. But at other times, they just seem to be running along a parallel road from the rest of us. And yes, I mean, think about de Gaulle uh, and the uh, force to frap, his, his sort of unilateral nuclear weapons policy and uh, his stormy relationship with NATO. And that, that, that certainly, and yet it's in the last analysis, it's Britain that was the one that pulled out of the European Union. So, uh, you know, maybe the, the post-colonial powers as a whole have a problem taking uh, collective authority. Well, and, and they're all struggling uh, at some level with the, with the loss of influence yes. um, all of these years later. Um, I often say that in the case of Britain, it's, uh, it's, uh, you might describe it as phantom empire syndrome. Yeah, very, you know, when you've had yeah. your empire amputated and you still keep trying to scratch it because it's driving you mad. Mm-hmm. And if you compare the United Kingdom with, for example, Austria, a country that lost its empire much longer ago, you'll see that, that that itch is much less intense and causes far less angst. France is responding to a similar itch, but in very different ways because they have a very different culture, a very different national personality. But I think it's basically the same, the same angst under, underpinning it. I mean, it's, it's quite funny. You just look at the way that they design their products. It's always on a tangential path from, from everybody else. The French cars always used to have the gear stick in a different place from other cars. Citroen was always just, or Renault was just different from Japanese, American, whatever cars. And they've become more globalized since then. Nowadays, you can't tell the difference between a a Citroen, a Peugeot or 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 a Nissan. They're all the same. And they've had to align. And I think that this is part of their pain. They invented their own internet, didn't they? Yes, yes, the the Minitel, that's right. But, you know, in preparation for our conversation today, I took a look at some French newspapers and news sources, and and they are concerned about a declining French influence in the world and France losing soft power. And they attribute it to two things. They think France handled the pandemic in an unattractive way and... Mm -hmm. Uh, didn't do as it didn't behave as it should, but they're also very concerned and, and focusing on the relationship between France and the Middle East. And you know, we should remember that there, there's been a, a lot of concern in the Middle East about treatment of Muslims in France, and there is um, a, an ongoing boycott of French products in many Middle Eastern countries. Yes, uh, what, what do you see as going on there? Because you know, to me. Sometimes it's like the old song, uh, doing things that you don't understand. I feel that about France. I don't quite understand why Macron is saying something, doing something, taking a a, a position on mm. citizens' behavior, on the rights of people to express themselves. That you seems surprising to me is is not what would be said in the UK. Do do you see that? Or, the, or those sorts of concerns showing up, or, or are they already included within a, a, a picture of France that has this slightly odd internal politics where there are these no-go areas? No, you can't display a religious emblem in a state, or, you know, in a, in, in a state context. And well, if you if you analyze perceptions of France amongst uh, self-declared Muslims uh, wherever they live in the Nation Brands Index. You, you you definitely see something of a negative prejudice there. It's not as bad as Denmark, which, as I think I mentioned in an earlier edition, 
is still suffering from the from the infamous uh, cartoons episode years and years ago. It's nowhere near that bad, but it's there. And it's not helped by the fact that Macron is, and the, the way that he, he responded was, I don't presume to understand exactly what, what he was playing out, mm-hmm. but it seemed to be very clearly targeted at a domestic audience. Well, the domestic audience is also massively Muslim, especially in the parts of France where um, uh, Macron is listened to particularly. So it was an unusual misstep on his part. And these things really don't help because it it means that um, France is seen as as victim and perpetrator hotbed of the the, the schism, the chasm between between Islam and the rest of, of the world. And that's terribly unfortunate. And it really doesn't have to be like that. But, uh, but it is, that's the reputation they seem to have inherited. And every now and again, it gets stoked up. How does Macron compare, with, you know, you have this uh, uh, phrase, good leader. Mm. Does he show up as, as a good leader compared to... Well, we, we actually featured him as our ungoodest leader in October last year, specifically because of, the, uh, because of his response to the, to the Pati um, episode. And he really created a, a firestorm. You had um, calls for a boycott of French products. It started, you, you had Doan in Turkey responding publicly that his, his comments about the, the crime were insulting. And we found negative social media rife in the UK, Kuwait, Qatar, Palestine, Egypt, Algeria, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Turkey. And then, of course, you got a number of EU governments defending Macron's stance and criticizing Erdogan for their responses. And this is just divisive and, and, and unnecessary. I, I suppose, uh, you know, I said it in the, in the comment when, when, we, when we awarded him Ungoodest Leader of the Month. His comments may have reassured some of his supporters that he's taking a strong, a strong stance against such outrages, but it appears to be at the cost of perpetuating Islamophobia. It does, you know, this kind of inflammatory language that he uses, it does nothing to improve mutual understanding and collaboration. You know, that was, that was a bad move. And as I say, he's he's normally he's normally more sure-footed than that uh, when he's dealing with international issues. I suppose there are international issues that don't hit home quite as hard or quite as divisively as Nam versus the rest. I mean, the Amazon, for example, Macron was 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 rather strong on that. He showed some some European leadership, something he's perfectly capable of. But it's uh, it's a it's a little bit patchy. It is so difficult, of course, for politicians to reconcile their international and their domestic reputations, isn't it? Because so often what the domestic population seems to want is the strongest and most resolute stance against the international interest. And this is why we, we so often say that the the art of being a good leader and being a good country in the 21st century is the harmonization of your domestic and your international responsibilities. And Macron is somebody, I have a lot of sympathy for him. It is a very, very tough juggling act. But there are quite a lot of leaders out there today who don't even bother to try. No. It's just domestic, domestic, domestic. Whatever gets me re-elected, whatever keeps me in office, I simply don't care. No, and I'm sure that there are some of the things, some of the choices that he's made for domestic political reasons uh, do play poorly over, overseas, yeah. clearly. Yeah. And yet with Angela Merkel due to step down, Macron mm. is going to be much more significant on the European stage. Surely in the next few years, he'll sort of... Uh, be the uh, stands to be the elder statesman. Yes. Well, let, let's let's hope he manages to find that sweet spot between between reassuring his own population that he's thinking of them, and yet leading France to be a principled power in the international community. 
because that's what's required of every leader today. He's certainly capable of it. He certainly sees the need for it, according to what he's said many, many times in the past. As I say, he hasn't been invariably sure-footed, but he does an awful lot better than many others. Yes. <laughs> Including people <laughs> closer to hand geographically to you, Simon. <laughs> Damn right. I, and, and, you know, let's, let's not be coy about this. Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, is the worst of a very, very bad lot in the sense that he's not even, uh, he's not even predictable like Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump will always play domestic against international. Boris Johnson seems to vacillate almost by the day. So some days he's trying to make, he's trying to play on the global Britain theme and say we're friends of the international community, we're friends of the environment, we're hosting the Climate Change Summit this year, we care about the entire human community, it's our responsibility and we feel it very deeply. And then the next day he's launching cheap shots at uh, EU uh, diplomats and saying, uh, we don't want you here in London because you're not an official representative of a sovereign state, which is just balmy. It's nobody knows where he stands on anything. Well, the thing that terrifies me with an understanding of British soft power is that he wants Britain to be influential in the world. The things that make Britain influential, like the BBC, British Council, British aid to foreign mm. countries, these things are under attack. And I'm appalled being... by the decision to cut back uh, British aid to foreigners. Apparently, uh, Boris Johnson sees himself as having to answer to the Daily Telegraph and mm. the conservative voice in, in, in Britain that, that sees no value in international aid. But that's a massive mistake and is literally killing the goose that laid the golden egg of Britain's reputation. Yes. So... I, you know, I, exactly. I don't see how Britain would be capable of sustaining quite the, the good image that it's had with, with these kinds of erosions of, uh, and, and British education as well as the other one, that that's always yes. been a major part of what people see as, as a positive in Britain. And yet they're talking about massive cuts to arts and humanities in British universities. How's that going to play in the world? Yes. I, I mean, the, 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 millions of people in um, least developed countries around the world who depend daily on um, UK aid, who are now going to have cut off. Um, what are they going to think of the UK? It, it's, it's shocking. And, and the other countries who are going to have to stump up to fill the gap and so forth. It, it's, these are very, very, very unwise moves. And it's disappointing how little effort politicians seem to make when it comes to trying to bridge these admittedly complex decisions. One so seldom sees any innovation or even attempts at innovation in policymaking. Yes, of course, it's difficult. Yes, of course, it's post-pandemic. Yes, of course, money is tight at the moment. And of course, people are saying, do we really need to give hundreds of millions away to people in poor countries when we can hardly feed ourselves? Of course, that's a valid um, argument and it has to be listened to. But on the other side, we are also responsible for every man, woman, child and animal on the planet and part of our species and because of what we've done in the past and because of what we want to do in the future and because of who we are as a nation, who any nation is as a nation, they are also our responsibility, not in the technical sense that they vote to, to, to put Boris Johnson in Downing Street, but in the moral and human sense. And of course, it's difficult to reconcile those, those different needs. Why is it that politicians don't appear to even try? 
they just give up on day one. They say, right, we're going to cut the aid because that's what the stronger side wants us to do. By the way, one little other point about just going back to France again, because we always end up talking about the United Kingdom. I have no idea why. <laughs> just going back to France again briefly, looking at the future as we were there in the case of the UK, this prejudice against the French people, which is more than a joke, it's a concern because it keeps France's uh, image slightly lower than it would otherwise be, and presumably makes it ever so slightly more difficult for French companies to do business abroad, for French diplomats to get through to their colleagues in other countries, for French students to get places at universities, mm-hmm. and so on and so on and so on. No sign that that prejudice is going to go away any time soon. It's actually more entrenched with the younger audiences, the 18 to 29s, than with the older really? demographics. So if you look at the countries where typically suspicion or antipathy towards the French people is highest, European neighbours largely, you'll find that the over 60s are less prejudiced against French, the French, and it's the youngest groups who are most prejudiced. This is not what we expect to see. We, I always have this idea in my mind, I'm sure you're all the same, that the younger generations are going to be marvellously liberal and open-minded yes. and international. More minded, cosmopolitan. More cosmopolitan. Uh, the reality of the matter is it's not that oh, That's re- That's On quite that, scary yeah. if Europe is outgrowing a cosmopolitan sensibility. I think that would be a, I think that would probably be a dramatic conclusion to one small bit of data. We'd need to take a wider look. We'd lo- need to look at more countries. But I think all we can conclude from that is that it's not always what you would expect. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks so much for listening. This has been People, Places, Power. I'm still Nick Cull. I'm still Simon Anhalt.